Oscar Poker. recording now or, yep. or, We're recording. i'm sorry first of all i, I apologize uh for uh for being late i think that um this happens to me once every uh month maybe once every month and a half i just suddenly uh can't wake up and i have and the, the body re, uh, demands like an eight or a nine hour real sleep something mm-hmm. really nice you know yeah. uh, I, I don't i don't uh, i get about five or six every night so i think the body uh wants the longer one every now and that's that's all that happened you know, yeah. I just go, yeah. yeah no worries you're only human man yeah <laughs> you can't burn it at both ends for so long without it suddenly you know why not why can't I burn it? <laughs> <laughs> you can. It's just you have to expect every once in a while your body's going to say, slow down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So That was one of the nicest photos I've ever seen of you and Svetlana. Oh. You've taken uh, many photos, but uh, yesterday morning we had a, <clears throat> a little um, uh, sort of a breakfast uh, thing at, uh, at Le Pan Quotidien. And, uh, for, for Jeff's birthday, might we add. Yeah, and the... Uh, the photo was just great. I just think the whole thing was worth it for that one photo. I no, that. that's so sweet. Thank you for saying so and for um, posting it. It was a really fun party, wasn't it? Yeah. And Tom O'Neill showed up. Tom O'Neill from Gold Derby showed up with a huge suitcase full of awards. <laughs> it was like our party theme. He pulled out an Oscar and a Golden Globe and an Emmy and um, Catherine Hepburn's membership card. And what else did he... he uh, uh, Phil Silver's uh, Emmy Award from 1956 or 57. Yeah, yeah, that was great. <laughs> Boy, Tom knows where all the bodies are buried, that's for sure. <laughs> so, uh, so, Phil, where are all the box office bodies buried this morning? What? Uh, huh. uh, well, J. Edgar's half in the grave, I'd say. Really? Um, I thought that. Yeah. Uh, I had the I, sense from people, uh, uh, well, I had the sense that it was sort of doing nicely, uh, at least from people who went to screenings. They felt that people liked it. But please, uh, I, all ears. I, didn't, I don't know a thing. So. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's not what I'm picking up. I mean, the, the opening is it's about what we were, where, where, where we were at, you know, in the middle of the week. You know, we said 12 and a half. It, it did 11 and a half. Um, so, you know, we're not really surprised by that. But what surprises me really is, is where I kind of feel the word of mouth is at. Um, you know, and the, the biggest thing for me is always the, the Flickster rating because it's the, it's the biggest kind of um, just it's they have the biggest amount of you know people that are they're going online and saying okay this is a, a quantifiable you know number this is what I assign to it and it has a 67 percent approval rating, which is pretty toxic and it, it's certainly not a, you know Oscar level approval rating so I don't think this is playing 
that well, you know, in the middle of the country. I mean, it, it might be a historical epic and it might on the surface look like something that would, you know, really bring it home, but I don't think it is. I, I think that the, you know, the trailer is, might be part of the problem here because the, the, the whole gay love story thing is only kind of, it's hinted at in the trailer. It's, it's definitely there, but it's not as pronounced as it is in the actual film itself. And, you know, the, the reality is we still live in a homophobic country. So, you know, the stuff like this, I don't think is playing that well. And that's mm-hmm. it. I mean, I just, I don't see it holding on that well. I really don't. Did you, um, uh, are the people that are Flickster commenters, aren't they primarily um, under under 35, under 40, or is it all ages? What's, what's I don't know. They don't, because they don't release the numbers, but I mean, it, it's just a sheer volume of it. I mean, the fact that 12,000 people are on there and it, it got a 67% approval rating, that means that you're going to hit, you know, and, and looking at the numbers just for, from the, the box office perspective itself, I mean, this thing skewed, it was, it was 60% over 50 that's pretty ridiculous. I mean, that kind of redefines the term skewing older. Um, so, I mean, if, if it has that many ratings and, and that many people saw it that were over 50, it's just kind of common sense that, okay, you know, th- those are the, also the people that are going to be voting and you hit a, a good enough cross-section of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of worried about it, I guess. Mm. You know, it's not, I don't think it's going to be very leggy. Um, at least not... At least not in the you know the typical sense of an Oscar contender. You know this isn't going to hit like a five or six multiplier by any means. I don't think. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think it'll cap out at like it'll be lucky to hit fifty. I'll be really surprised if it hits fifty. Wow. Um, Do we know yeah. what the, what's the budget on it? Did you say already? Um, we don't have we don't have that yet. We, we usually get those on on Monday when they report the actuals mm-hmm. and and um, unless the studio wants to brag that it only cost fifteen million to make and it made twelve already. We usually don't hear hear about that. So, right, right, so. Right, right, right. Um, but I'm, I'm, it has to be pricey. I mean, you know, it, a movie like this, even though DiCaprio cut his salary and everything, I mean, it's not, you know, the it's a lot of costumes and and a lot of production value behind it. So the period and and the costumes and the, uh, but he is of course it's his signature. It's his middle name. It's uh, that he does not uh, cost a lot. He he does things economically. But still, it looks like it had to be at least a, you know, twenty-five or thirty or something like that. More, I don't know. I know that the cap- uh, yeah, yeah. If I had to guess, I'd say even forty or fifty. Really, I mean, it's not. Yeah, he does bring things in on time, and and he's you know he doesn't go over budget. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have to spend a lot to begin with. I think Hereafter even had a pretty yeah. big budget. You know, so Warner Brothers isn't afraid to give him money to play with because you know he has a blank check as far as they're concerned. I think so. Um, what about Immortals and Jack and Jill? Were they the top? Uh, I didn't even see the numbers. Yeah, Immortals is definitely going to be front loaded. That did thirty-two million. Um, and you know, the the reason I say it's going to be front loaded is it's its first day it made fifteen million, and for it not to hit you know thirty-five, thirty-six based on that, you know, for it to to end up at thirty-two is is not a good sign. Um, you know, and it's, it's the same thing. I mean, it's gunning after you know teenage boys, so they show up opening weekend and then they disappear. You know, it's it's um, it's the exact opposite of Jay Edgar, mm. and then and then yeah, Jack and Jill is you know like I expected, it's it's critic proof. I mean, it doesn't matter that it has a three percent approval rating on you know Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Adam Sandler fans don't give a shit about that. You know, it's like they shrug it off and show up anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I and I'm happy to report thing. that I I braved it too. Okay, um, I went to see it yesterday, 
And uh, <laughs> the Al Pacino stuff is actually pretty funny. Um, you know, you, you could do a lot worse, but the, the rest of it's brutal. I mean, it, it's just probably <laughs> without the Al Pacino stuff, it would be easily Adam Sandler's worst movie. Oh, ever. no. Oh. And that's, you know, that's that's really saying something. Um, so, yeah. Well, that's a drag. <laughs> is there yeah. any? So I think I still think uh, Leo's got a nomination for J. Edgar, though. I still think that's going to happen, don't you? Yeah, because, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't have to be. A movie doesn't have to be great for it's, it's still to pull off an acting nomination. I mean, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but I'm sure you guys could um, of movies that were kind of had a mixed reception. But, you know, the actor was well, still nominated. Uh, in, yeah, Invictus is a good example, right? Although Invictus yeah. probably made a lot of money. Um, but No, I mean, that wasn't, a, that wasn't a huge commercial success either. I mean, Jade Girl will probably actually end up ending up, you know, pretty close to where Invictus was, I think. Um, in terms of grosses, so, but yeah, I mean, but I, do you think it's dead in terms of best picture? That's the thing I'm curious about. I mean, oh, yeah. to me, it seems like it. I don't think there was ever any, uh, from the moment I saw it, at least, I knew this was not going to be a best picture nominee. I didn't, who, has anybody uh, advanced that notion with any sincerity? Well, no, I mean, I still have it on my chart. I suppose I should probably take it off because it doesn't have a chance. I don't even think of getting the 50 needed to get into the second round. Um, the, the, the thinking behind that was that the Academy are, um, you know, they are uh, of the generation that would be interested in Hoover. They're exactly who Phil is saying is making the money at the box office. However, they're not necessarily going to be the same type of people that are going to embrace the gay love story aspect of it, which is what I liked about it. Um, I thought it told a really wonderful story that way. Um, I know it's a little bit of a mess. I just think we live in such a pile-on culture. You know, it's sort of like a movie comes out and everybody just piles on and that's it. It's dismissed. And I did not uh, feel it was dismissible. It's too good of the things that it is good at. Uh, I, I found it draggy to watch uh, because I didn't uh, feel uh, very lifted up or, or touched, uh, really. Uh, by. I mean, I, I kind of... But I did like, Sasha, the, uh, the, the you know, the, the, the love... Story current or the repressed or denied love story current is the thing that that, that works. Yeah. Uh, but it's but I I don't think it sh anybody should like dismiss it outright. I just don't think it was strong enough, or uh, for, you know even uh, on a simplistic level enjoyable enough to to uh, to warrant that much enthusiasm. Well, the only thing that's going to save it would be critics awards. And if you notice, there are two movies that I think are have made interesting progress in terms of the critics this year, and one is Drive and the other is J. Edgar, and the reason is that Drive has all the, like, peripheral critics supporting it. Um, I don't know how else to say it. Uh, what I mean by that is not the major critics. The major critics I would consider would be New York Times, L.A. Times, Washington Post, um, uh, Wall Street Journal, New Yorker, uh, that kind of thing. Those are what I consider major critics. I don't ever count, and when I'm looking at the Oscar race, all voices equal because they're not. Kenneth Turan is, and Manuel Adargas make a lot more impact on Oscar voters than, um, I don't know, somebody from Chud or whatever. You know? Why are we even discussing Drive as a best picture? Okay, I'm just saying, in terms of that, I, uh, there were a lot of 
very vocal supporters of Drive who keep asking me, why isn't it going to get Best Picture? It got these great reviews. And I said, well, it did get great reviews, except that it didn't. It didn't get great reviews from the heart of the critics. And, and J. Edgar did. J. Edgar got really good reviews from the LA Times and New York Times, blah, blah, and on and on. But it didn't get good reviews from everybody else. So you have an opposite scenario there. And so I'm curious to see how it all plays out because these major critics, they're the ones who drive the critics awards. They're the ones who drive the LA film critics. Yeah, they're, you know, it, so, it's, why, why can't something just be respected and enjoyed and seen again on Blu-ray and just part of our collective memory? Why does it have to be automatically thrust or, or tried to, they, why do they have to try and even thrust something, uh, a genre film, a really excellent genre film like Drive into best of the year? I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's a, you know, it's made a, a, a you know, I'll, I'll remember it always. The thing that is bothersome about that film, and I think I've tried to say this at least once, is that it has this fetish for sharp knives and arterial slashings of arms and, and you know, uh, and, and just blood on the floor. It's, it's, it's like Japanese films. You know, they have this thing about, you know, having uh, uh, limbs cut off and, you know, Harakiri in the stomach and all that. It's 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 creepy, and I, I didn't find I, I, well, that is what retarded the the it spread the spiritual spread of that movie. Me, uh, so hmm. I like how you put that sentence. Retarded the spiritual spread of that movie. That's yeah. quite a sentence there, dude. It's, it, it starts on its own and then it catches within you and kind of kind of lifts you up and takes you takes other people. You know. Ah, uh, well, I like that. Um, I don't well, know. I, I thought, well, go ahead, Phil. Sorry. Oh no, no, you can go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, no, and I think that's what, you know, part of what killed it at the box office, Jeff, what you're talking about. You know, because I remember when I went to see it with an audience and, and they were really going with it and they were, you know, en enthused. And then, you know, he, he slaps Christina Hendricks and then it, the air goes out of the room and then it gets progressively, you know, more violent. Um, I think that's what stopped it. You know, it, it was a, you know, it, it did like something like 35 million, but without that kind of really graphic, you know, third acts you know that you're looking at a 50 60 million dollar yeah. hit i think you know mm. with that movie so yeah you're you're not you're not the only one who, who felt that way this winding ref and it's that uh, danish nordic uh thing about um uh, i remember this is funny when i was in italy in 1992 uh for the filming of Cliffhanger, the Rennie Harlan-directed Sylvester Stallone action film, which didn't turn out all that well, but it was, you know, like the hot, the hot thing at the moment. But I can recall uh, Sylvester Stallone saying to me in one of two, the two or three on-set interviews that we did that there's something uh, in Rennie Harlan who is, I come, he comes from, I believe, Finland or Norway or one of those. He said there's something about that Nordic Finnish thing about violence. Those guys are, are, are very easy with, with uh, and they and they are completely comfortable with it, and they're, they, they're sort of drawn to severe violence. <laughs> okay. So I say that Nicholas Winding Refn and, and, and Harlan, uh, perhaps, and perhaps others, I don't know, you know, I haven't studied this or done a big thesis, but there's something about that uh, kind of a, uh, some kind of violent perversity that comes from that area of the, of the, of the globe. Yeah, fine, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. I mean, what happened with the small ones, Phil? I was kind of wondering about 
poor uh, little Melancholia and poor little London Boulevard. I know you don't uh, you don't get those figures until later in the day. Well, no, I mean usually we yeah, but Magnolia is one case. They don't report Sunday estimates, so I've I've no I thought they might have just because that's a pretty high profile thing for them. But um, I'm not expecting much because it's been a that that movie's been available on VOD for I think more than a month now. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I'm not expecting huge numbers there, and and same thing with London Boulevard. I mean, that's just that's a textbook definition of a movie being dumped. I mean, yeah. if, if you have Colin Farrell and, and Keira Knightley and you're not giving it a push, um, that's you know, that's a that's a really bad sign. Yeah. So it's not know, a very it's play. not a very good film. It's a messy film, particularly in the second half. But um, I was just wondering, um, <clears throat> Phil, can you? Uh, there were some people that have told me that, that they saw notifications in either ads or in listings that London Boulevard was going to be opening limited in Los Angeles as well as New York, and they did not see it. Apparently, it, does, it is not playing in really? Los Angeles. Uh, wow. You don't know about that. Okay. No, no, I haven't heard anything uh, about that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, who knows? They so, Sasha, just... what did you think of um, Melancholia when you saw it in Cannes? You saw it, right? Mm. Um, yeah, I... Uh, I um... I, I I don't know. I mean, I thought it was interesting. I I am surprised it's getting the kind of rave reviews that it's getting. Um, I thought it was really weird and ominous. It joins movies like Taking Take Shelter and uh, Contagion and something we just saw recently that's very ominous, yeah. uh, which I don't recall at the moment. But you know, these these movies, this idea that there is some thing on the horizon that is coming for us and it's sort of palpable fear and I think it joins that and that's how I see it in context of this year I myself um I thought it was okay Kirsten Dunst is fun to watch you know she's really good I thought in it I thought they wasted um Alexander Skarsgård though and um he's the rejected husband who's very obviously very good looking fellow and he gets kind of just tossed aside with him in the first act and then he yeah. leaves. And, I know. Oh. And he's a great actor. I don't know why they didn't use him more. Um, but yeah. I, you know, I thought it was beautiful to look at, you know, it's one of those beautiful to look at movies that, that <laughs> there seems to be so many of them this year, but it, it didn't really have a lot of context for me. You know, I think it looks important and it has a sense that it's important, but it doesn't ultimately say anything particularly interesting to me personally. But I'm not. I would never say it was a bad movie. You know. Did it, did it, uh, you find it bothersome, um, Phil? Did you see it, by the way? Yeah, yeah. Did you find it bothersome that all the talk about uh, the this huge planet is going to collide with our own? And uh, I, I kind of like that they didn't try to back it up with uh, scientific uh, data or, yeah, I mean, fake scientific data. Uh, um, Vontree is telling us that it's not. Really about a planet. It, it, as, as Sasha said, and I'm, I've written myself, it's about this vague sense that we're not going in a good direction as a culture. You know that things are are, are not uh, optimistic for our future. You know it's a good it's a good uh, metaphor, but nobody ever refers to. Every, nobody ever goes online or or looks at a computer during the entire thing. I just thought it was strange. And yeah. movie shot in 2011. I mean, if this were shot in 1984, okay, but you know. You know what I'm saying? I know. I think I, they briefly I, do. No, because I, um, I saw it recently. Yeah, they, um, what's her, uh, Gainsbourg's character yeah. does go on a, a computer. But I'm yeah, sure. I mean, they, they shy away from that, obviously. But I think that goes hand in hand with what you're complimenting on. Yeah. You're, you're complimenting it about the fact that it doesn't dwell on like the science of it or anything like that. It's all the, the emotion and, and everything like that. So, right. you know. 
It is, and it's, it, it does capture that in untangible, un, intangible or untangible fear in that, yeah, intangible, um, and that Take Shelter also does, which I think Take Shelter does it a little bit better because it relies more on the actors and less on the, uh, uh, the special effects, but, and the look of it, which, Von Trier, it's so beautiful, that movie. Um, that's but, a good point. They're both kind of in the same realm, and uh, you're, yeah, and you're, and you're right. I do think Take Shelter is, 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 does deliver that kind of thing. Yeah, even though you're right, in Take Shelter, it's like it might as well be set in 1950 because they don't have. They, she doesn't ever sit down and Google any of this stuff, you know. And that would have been my first inclination, or go yeah. on a support group or something, you know. It's the first thing you do. So. Have you heard, by the way, of any? Um, screenings <clears throat> sometime uh, soon of Iron Lady. Um, I was told no. that, that that's just around the corner, but I haven't um, heard of anything specific. Have you? No, that's <laughs> another weird one this year is Iron Lady. Uh, it's one of the other ones that they seem to be just like hiding. <laughs> I don't know why they're doing this, but it's really strange that, that we haven't seen any of these movies. And um, Iron Lady's one and uh, Extremely Loud is another. Uh, it's just and 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 we bought a zoo. <laughs> it's like, although I did hear reports that some people have seen um, in the land of blood and honey, and that it's supposed to be pretty darn good. So yeah, okay, that's one thing I've heard. And well, that's good. That'll be great for her. I, I would I would be delighted if that turned out to be a, you know, that's that's good. Yeah, good to hear that. Are these serious people, uh, tough, tough critics? No, I mean, it's nobody that I've ever heard of, but it doesn't matter. I mean, they could just be planting it, but I keep hearing people writing me. It could just be a publicist, you know, who hired a yeah. online shill to pretend that it's actually got buzz. You never know. But, I mean, I don't totally write that stuff off. I keep one ear t to it, and you know, but I don't write a big post about it. So-and-so says that it's a great movie, you know. But, um, but Phil, I wanted to ask you about um, Moneyball, how it's doing box office wise. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's at the end of its run um, and it's going to just keep being overshadowed. Um, let me pull up. Give me a second here. Because I've been watching Thinking. it and it seems to be still in the news. Like it's because it's sort of controversial. It sort of had something to do to relate to the World Series, how it turned out. They were all talking about did Moneyball help that or didn't it? And, you know, I've read differing. Um, reports that somebody took Yogi Berra to see it. Jeff, did you see that story where Yogi Berra oh, went yeah. to Moneyball? No, but I uh, I saw it on your site, Sasha. Yeah. And since it's so late to uh, uh, get get up this morning, I'm going to see it. Read it. Uh, what's the summary? What's the essence? Well, it's 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 actually not that great of a piece, I would say. But um, he's interesting, and the fact that he's going to see it, it's kind of keeping Moneyball in the in the conversation a little bit is just, it's sort of kicking around out there in the world. It's not just a movie that critics are talking about and that people like me are talking about. I mean, it's actually making an impact as a movie of the this year that people are talking about. And nobody's ever gonna forget the term Moneyball. After. So what you're saying, Sasha, I think, is that uh, if they were smart about it sometime uh, towards the end of this month, and certainly by early December, they need to do something to reinvigorate the conversation about Moneyball. They have to bring out the cast again. They have to do something, you know, because it seems, as Phil is indicating, uh, box office-wise, it's, it's dribbling out, and uh, the conversation, of course, naturally is being taken over by the newer releases, so, right? Yeah, but, it, but it ended out at a pretty good amount, I'd say. 70 million or so is pretty Yeah, right now it's about 72, and it, it's still going. I mean, it might still creep up to 75, so... Yeah, that's that's really good, you know, for a movie like that. 
uh, you know, it's definitely a success. But, but for- you know, I've made the point before to to Jeff, and I think I did it on the the podcast. I mean, the the, the lack of a you know, showy, you know, winning the World Series ending is the difference between seventy-five million and one hundred and five million. Right. You know. But what about so. the forecast, Phil? What do you foresee happening when the Descendants opens? Uh, not uh, this coming uh, uh, the eighteenth. That's only limited. When is the actual real opening of the Descendants? When does that happen? I think they're they're rolling it out. They're pretty confident about it, so I think it's going to roll out to a lot of locations the twenty-third. Um, this is going to, it's going to destroy, it's going to do really well. I mean, cause it's, it's just, it has something in there for everyone. So, I mean, you know, people are going to look at it as an Oscar contender, you know, it's going to be a date movie. It's going to be, um, it's just going to be everything. I, I think it legitimately has a shot. It, it, I think it'll be, um, Alexander Payne's most successful movie. And I think it has a legitimate shot at being, you know, the, the $100 million, um, you know, earner of, of this year. Um, in terms of you know the Oscar contenders, because it's just a very satisfying, emotionally resonant movie. Yeah, that last, uh, that last scene uh, on the couch is going to uh, settle in with absolutely every age group, and that's it's not like it's a wonderful, delightful, transcendent scene, but it's a very correct, really well ended uh, film. That that's that, and I think that 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 is a big hit. That that last scene. So yeah, I mean, there's still so many variables with it, though. Like we uh, again, I know I keep sounding like a broken record, but the critics have not reviewed that movie. I mean, it's been reviewed by us, but it hasn't ever really been a formally reviewed. All the, the uh, fairly good cross section, I think, uh, fairly. Uh... Yeah, but the major papers haven't reviewed it, and I'm just saying that that can change it. That that can change the story significantly. Not gonna change it. Oh gonna, sure. Uh, everybody's gonna love this thing. It's already. If, been... if the movie gets a negative review by the L.A. Times and the New York Times, you can bet it's gonna hurt it for sure. It'll change the buzz, but I don't think that's gonna happen. I think it's gonna, gonna get happen. rave reviews, and I think it's gonna do really well, as Phil said. I just think it's funny that. I'm noting the difference between talking about the Oscar race right now and how it might look once it opens. It does make, like Moneyball and uh, Midnight in Paris and The Help are still the only Oscar contenders that have actually opened to the public, you know? Those are the three. And the rest of them we've just been taught, like The Artist and The Descendants, we're talking about them as though they've already done that, they've already been tested, but they haven't been, you know? Which reminds me, I've been pestering, not pestering. I have called twice uh, and had one callback from Robert Robert Forster, who uh, uh, I think he's delicious as the as the cranky grandfather in the Descendants, and I wanted to talk to him and just I think it's the best thing he has done since since his uh, Oscar winning turn in uh, Jackie Brown in 1995. Was that Five, he, he didn't win the Oscar for that though? You might want to cut. That. I don't think he won, right? Yes, he did. No. For what? Robert Forster won for Jackie Brown. He did. No, he didn't. He didn't yeah. win. Everybody wanted him to win, but he didn't win. No. Yeah. Let's see who won Stop instead. The, wait, we're, we're stopping the. Uh, <laughs> you're telling me that Robert Forster was not handed an Oscar for that uh, uh, performance in Jackie Brown? No, I think he was. Let's just see if he even got nominated. He might have gotten nominated. Let's see. I know that you know all the the Tarantino fans were out in force with that one, wanting him to get uh, recognition. Um, but. Let's see who won instead. <laughs> what? I, um, I'm like, uh, I know I'm wrong. You're I'm right about this, and I'm. Uh, no, he was nominated for supporting actor and for Jackie Brown, and I remember it being kind of a, a big deal that he got nominated. Robin Williams for Goodwill Hunting won instead. <laughs> 
Oh, so he had tough competition. love the Academy. Because that, that was Burt Reynolds' year, too. Yeah. That was Burt wow. Reynolds, and, and it was Greg Kinnear, and in As Good As It Gets, who deserved to win. Wow. And Hold Anthony on, stop. Right, right at the top, Robert Forster, Wikipedia. Uh, American actor, best known for his role as John uh, Casellas in, in Medium Cool and as Max Cherry in Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, the latter of which gaining him an Academy Award, oh, excuse me, excuse me. Nomination. Uh, you're right, uh, a nomination. <laughs> what the fuck happened? If they were cool. I, had, I swear to God, I thought he fucking won He was that great thing. in that, but Greg Kinnear deserved to win that year, sorry. And then Anthony Hopkins for Amistad. Um, Robin Williams won, of course. <laughs> <laughs> what was it for again? I'm sorry. Goodwill Hunting. Oh gosh. <laughs> it's not your fault. It's not your fault. What a shocker. <laughs> I mean, I really, really thought he was. Uh, I guess I, in my head, I must have said to myself, "Well, he is really. Um, you know, this has been quite the thing for him that he was nominated." I, I don't know how I got the. I really was surprised. I well, thought. He, I, you know, back then, that was the year before I started my website, and I remember the Oscars in a different context then. That was like, it was the Oscars of personality. You know, if you were Robin Williams, you you, you took the stage every... And Jack Nicholson won for As Good As It Gets, by the way, that year, and so did Helen Hunt. And Titanic won Best Picture. Yeah. Uh, Kim Basinger won Best Supporting Actress. So... Um, you know, it was it was like you don't deny Robin Williams an Oscar if you saw him that year. You know, he was the kind of guy that anytime you put a mic in his face, he he was funny and he told you know he would impersonate people and he would make everybody laugh. And that is how you win an Oscar, especially Oscar old school. You know, back in the day, that was the way you did it. Um, Kevin Spacey for American Beauty, that was the same thing. He killed it every time he hit the mic. You know, and that was a lot of way a lot of the way that people came in contact with Oscar winners back or Oscar nominees back then was they were on talk shows and they were doing, you know, other award shows and, and making funny speeches. They didn't have the kind of, you know, onslaught of, of publicity that you have now where the focus tends to be a little bit more on the performance rather than the person, the actor, you know, but back then it absolutely was about that. I'm not saying, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people thought that Robin Williams deserved to win for that, but, um, but in my mind, he did not. I think in this day and age, Greg Kinnear would have won because there would have been so much support for that performance, which was really, really, really good. Whoa. Well, oh, that's strong. What is that, a motorcycle? That, that yeah, was a motorcycle just drove past. No way. <laughs> that was a take shelter moment. <laughs> <laughs> what for the uh, next weekend, Phil, for the uh, for Breaking Dawn Part 1, uh, the, the, the almost the last the Twilight uh, Saga film? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be off the charts. It's going to be crazy. I mean, you know, we're we're at 155 million right now for the opening weekend. Oh, um, but you you never know. You know, something like this can <clears throat> really break out because it's you know the first part of the la the end of the franchise, and you know, look how well the last two Harry Potter movies you know performed. So you get this effect where it's you know, people who weren't necessarily a part of the hysteria up until this point kind of see that it's coming to an end and they say, oh, okay, well, you know, I want to be a part of the conversation now and they and they show up, which is exactly what happened with Harry Potter. So, um, you know, there's that. And then I, I should mention, you know, before I head out, um, Tyrannosaur is next weekend as well. Yeah. So I'll, I'll keep a close eye on that and, you know, hopefully something pops there and it has a decent, you know, it, it performs 
well, you know, in its platform release and it catches on and, and people, you know, Stop. discover it. Come on, let's 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 dispense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be PR here. Jeff. I'm trying to, you know, catch on. Let's just <laughs> and, and nobody is more strongly about this film than I do. You're so something funny, Jeff. To, all I've been saying all along is that it's something. <laughs> it's Sasha, it is something, Sasha, that has to be seen. I hear you, dude. I hear you. I, I, you know, and that's the problem is you got to realize. That's what I'm saying. Just see it. And, okay, okay. Let me tell you something. Yeah. Let me tell you something. No, I think that, um, the unfortunately, this is a movie Academy members will not watch. So just be prepared for that because they're not going to want to put it in their screener. They're barely going to get pulled out to... Uh, to screenings, you know, it's it's a hardcore movie and that's going to hurt it. But the critics can revive it. It needs a lot of really good critical support. She needs to win a whole bunch of critics awards, which she probably will, you know. And uh, the Oscar so, the Oscar nominations and the Oscar buzz about it is what's going to make that movie some money. Here we go. So it has to be seen, right, Sasha? Oh! <laughs> 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 I have to see it. I have to steal up my courage and watch it. I don't want to. <laughs> Just saying, it, it really, you know, I don't know if they even have any screenings left. Let me see. I think the last one that I'm aware of was on the, there was a BAFTA screening that they did. They had one of their own on the 8th. And I, I don't even know that they have any more, so... Yeah. Anyway, that's okay. uh, we're speaking as we're speaking. Miss Coleman arrived in Los Angeles last night. She's here for a week to talk to people like Sasha and myself, and and as many others as they can fit into their schedule. So you know, maybe between it, the reviews and what she is able to generate, you know, I hope. And Phil, the other big one is going to be, uh, uh, of course, Happy Feet Two, right? Three D. Uh, yeah. That's going to make <laughs> bank, isn't um, it? Yeah. 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 I mean, we're in we're into the holiday season now, so yeah. it's yeah, the, the juggernauts are. Right. They're, they're rolling them out, and um, and you know what's what's it really interesting for me for later in this month, we finally get to see. Uh, well, I guess I was going to say the artist is finally going to uh, have to take the Pepsi challenge, uh, the acid test, whatever you want to call it. But it's going to have to. Uh, I'd like to see what happens with that uh, commercially, and and see how the under thirty five or under forty generation responds to uh, something that every film lover has to see. They really do. It's just not. There's no uh, option here. But I'd like to see what happens because I'm I'm kind of wondering. I, I spoke to a woman in, at in Savannah who's a publicist, who's a music publicist, who's in their early thirties, and I said, "What do you think it's going to uh, do with people? You know, of your." generation, you know, younger, uh, that general realm. <clears throat> and they said, forget it. They're not going to go see it. They're not going to see a black and white silent film. They're just not. And um, I'd like to see if that's wrong. And I'd like to see if if, if the film passion, if, if you have any blood in you that loves film just for itself, you have to go see it. I'd like to see if that manifests. Well, know? they know what they're doing, these Weinsteins. I mean, I just saw this morning on CBS Sunday morning, they had a big thing on the artist. I know that's not the demographic for young people. That's the demographic for Academy voters. But yeah, I was going to say Sunday morning doesn't exist to my generation. No, I know, so. but it, it definitely it was like the, is the silent movie coming back? And you know, Kenneth Turan of the LA Times is doing a big, big kind of PR push for the artist, which is really unusual for him. He never comes out like this for a movie, but he's quoted in that story of why it's so important, why it's such a great movie, how charming it is, why everybody loves it. But the slow burn of the artist is going to eventually hit everybody. It's going to take time. But, you know, it's interesting you bring up Savannah, because I have to say, Savannah was the only place where I didn't hear all-out artist support. Uh -huh. I was, like, driving in a car, and I was hearing, 
uh, our driver was talking about it, and she was saying, she said it was so funny. I said, so what did you think of the artist? And usually when you ask that question, people, oh, I loved it. But she was like, you know, I actually liked it. <laughs> 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 Apparently everybody she kind of saw it with, they were grumbling about it. They didn't see what the big deal was, you know. They weren't that impressed, but... Here's a, here's a significant thing, possibly. Uh, Ann Thompson and Chris, in their more most recent uh, podcast, uh, Oscar Talk, which uh, went up about two or three days ago, <clears throat> they never mention you or I, Sasha, ever. They, it's like, you know, the, the, we'll say, Phil, uh, three of us will talk about anything, and everyone, we'll, we'll say whatever. They will not mention. You know, it's, it's like the old days and the... Um, and if you were on CBS, you couldn't mention the existence of NBC or ABC. <laughs> they kind of uh, have that aesthetic going. And Anne actually mentioned me because she had seen the artist for the second time. And she said, Jeffrey Wells said this also, which is that it doesn't play. It, the, the novelty is gone after you see it the second time. And then you're kind of just left with what it is. And what it amounts to is really quite slight. And it really doesn't have a, uh, a lot of depth to it. It's really just... Uh, uh, that those wonderful services and the wonderful conceit of making a silent film, which uh, and and a good-looking silent film and an emotionally uh, affecting in some ways, but it's really very thin and uh, very slight uh, when you yeah. get past the novelty. Hmm. Well, let I've it seen it Wednesday, and, and I'll have a better idea then. But I'm kind of throwing my hands in the air in terms of the, the box office potential of this thing. I mean, if I had a bet, look, I, if I had a place money on it it's definitely going to end up closer to you know even if it is a best picture contender which it, it sounds like it will be um it'll end up closer to something like hurt locker i i would think oh in, no in terms way of gross that's gonna but, do i mean well, wait, wait, that, that's only about what did that end up 12 million with? no well, way it's gonna go to 50 closer man to that you know in the spectrum of oscar you know grosses you have you know the king's speech which is you know right right i see what you're saying or, yeah. and then you have hurt locker on the other end if I had to peg it and, and put it somewhere on the spectrum, it would be closer to the Hurt Locker. And does, does that mean I think it'll do $17 million? No. I mean, the Weinstein Company, they're smart. Um, they'll find an audience for something like this, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, how wide is something like this going to go? You know, is it something that's really going to play at multiplexes? You know, it's, it's a big, it's a huge question mark. It's one, one movie this season that really just kind of confounds me. And I could... Yeah, I could I could also see it surprising, you know, if it if it does become, you know, the the favorite to win and it's annoyed at that and it's crowned, you know, before the awards are even given out, then yeah, people might show yeah. up and you could see it do you could see it really surprise, you know, it could do like 70 80 million or something like that yeah. if, the, if that happens, but That's what I knows, think. It, I think it's going to go such a range. I'm so know? sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So what were we going to say, Sasha? I was just going to say, I think it's, I, I sort of envision it around 50, 60 million. And the reason is that I think it's going to be strong word of mouth. And it's going to be strong word of mouth with people who aren't usually targeted for box office dollars. It's going to make people come out to the movies to see it. People who sit at home and watch TV, you know, people like my mom, um, they're going to want to see this silent movie. And it's that alone is going to make it money. Whereas people aren't going to say, I'm going to wait for DVD for it. I'm going to see it now. Because it's such a strange novelty to come out now, especially with all the crap that's in the movie theater. Uh, so I think it's going to do really well money-wise. Just judging by the buzz that I heard in Cannes and Telluride and, and that came out of Toronto, there's so many people who love it. And I think that Ann Thompson makes a huge mistake always when she tries to perceive how other people are going to perceive the movie. You know, she doesn't know. She has no idea. I mean, and, and, and oh, she's, She was saying to Chris and to the, their listening public, 
that I am correct in that uh, she felt the same way, that the film does not carry through for a second viewing because once the novelty is gone, you're left with the actual meat and bones of that film, which are very slight, and it's, it's very much of a trifle. No, it's not a trifle. It is absolutely not a trifle. I mean, it is for, for like, the layman who's walking in, I want to be entertained, yeah. But if you look closer, you see a director who is really brilliant at what he's doing, and he has jam-packed that thing full of cinema references. The Citizen Kane one comes to mind, which I absolutely love when they're sitting across the table from each other. The, the aspect ratio he filmed it in, um, the, yeah. the costumes, the sets, the lighting, uh, everything about that, uh, any film student who has half a brain will watch that movie over and over again and study it because this guy, he's not, Absolutely. Just, no, he's not just some blowhard who came and made a funny yeah. novelty movie. This yeah. is a really well-studied, well-executed film. That all falls away. I couldn't have been more bored the second time. I don't know what it was. I was just waiting for something else besides what I already knew about the film, which I, you know, was, I was very uh, delighted with. I wasn't elevated by it, but I was certainly saying, this is a good thing, this is worth it. But the second time, I'm telling you, it, it, it just doesn't have it. It's just, you're like, can I, you know, you, you start thinking about cutting out and doing some writing while it's playing, you know, and that's what I was thinking. So. Um, okay, well, so I think Phil has to go, right, Phil? Yeah, yeah, I got it. Oh, okay, well, it was really nice talking to you. Yeah, thanks again, guys. So, thanks. Phil, we'll be talking, uh, obviously, about the big weekend. Uh, so, and, yeah, so, anyway, so, yeah, how many times have you seen The Descendants, Phil? I've just seen it once, so, I mean, I, I would like to have gone to other screenings, but I was just right. able to make it once. But I can't wait to see it with an actual audience. I, you know, I think they're going to yeah. love it. I think yeah. it's, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, All right, cool. All right, thanks, guys. Great. All right, talk to you later. All right, bye. So, so Sasha, just jumping right in, uh, uh, can you summarize your uh, feelings and your judgments uh, about the entire uh, uh, Academy uh you know, calamity that happened over the last uh, <laughs> uh, nine, nine days, I guess, is when uh, Brett Rander uh, triggered it by talking about <clears throat> uh, rehearsal being for fags. So that happened uh, um, last a week ago, last Friday, in New York at a post uh, Q and A, a post screening Q and A for uh, uh, for Tower Heist. So, can you uh, just sum up what you uh, feel, you know, about the entire episode, including um, Brian Grazer and and um, and Billy Crystal's uh, being the new host and all that. Yeah. Give- well, I, let's just start at the beginning by saying that when the Academy picked J- um, James Franco and Anna Hathaway last year, to me it was a signal that, A, they're trying desperately to do something new and draw in new audiences, younger audiences, and, B, they have somebody very uninformed informing them on who and what might help them. That was not a good choice last year to pick those two. Anne Hathaway was okay, but Franco, oh. Plus, it was weird to me because they were both potential Oscar contenders. Um, he ended up being nominated, and she didn't. But um, well, who was it that was making that call last year? I don't know. That's the thing. I don't know who's informing them. I don't know who's giving them advice. I have no idea who the person is that's telling them who and what to hire. I, I assumed it was a publicist because they these were Oscar contenders, yeah. potentially. Yeah. Um, so cut to this year, and when they first announced it was Brett Ratner, I, my first thought was, oh, God, whoever that person is informing them gave them some bad advice again. Well, do you think that Dawn Hudson, who is the, what's her title again? She's the CEO, or she's the, she's just slightly above uh, Tom Sherrick within the Academy hierarchy, isn't yeah, that Yeah, I think so. I have to double-check that, but didn't she replace Bruce Davis? Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, maybe it's her. I don't know. But, you know, their choice with Brett Ratner was to go totally in the opposite direction of what the Academy usually pick, you know, the, the kind of people that they choose to produce it. Um, Brett Ratner carries with him, uh, you know, he's notorious for all of his exploits and the kind of movies that he makes. But, but beyond that, he was also promoting Tower Heist at the same time. And so my first thought was, okay, Ben Stiller's going to, Ben Stiller's going to host. And I put that out there and people started talking about it and then no, it wasn't Ben Stiller, but it was close. It was Eddie Murphy. Who's the other star of it. Great. A black host. And they hardly ever have them. That's cool. That's, uh, you know, yeah. he's, he's coming, he's, he's making his career comeback tower heist. Everything's, you know, perfect. Everything's going to work fine. Okay, fine. Eddie Murphy saved it. Well then Brett Ratner goes and appears on the Howard Stern show talking about Olivia. Who is it that he was talking about? Lindsay Lohan. Uh, how he's great at cunnilingus. Well, uh, how he's yeah. um, you know how he doesn't like sexual diseases, and he always asks his girlfriends who he's going to sleep with. <laughs> well, by the way, since we're probably on the road to sexual intimacy, I'd like to request that you visit your physician and give me a full report. <laughs> oh, for God's sake, <laughs> that's really romantic. <laughs> Oh, dear. Well, it seems like, again, as I was telling Scott on the, uh, po the podcast I did with him, it's one thing to just be that person and to say those things. You can do whatever the hell you want in Hollywood. But when you are suddenly the producer of the Oscars, you carry with it some sort of prestige and you're, you have to kind of be represent them for a year. Yeah. And you should take that seriously. That's the, the Academy. They They put on this, you know whether it's you know hypocritical or not, they put on a front of prestige and, and, and they have to kind of answer to, you know, the network and they have to answer to the public and, you know, they can't just be representing somebody like that. Okay. So that was, but then he makes the comment about fags, which I didn't know about until the guy who writes, who my editor, Ryan posted on our site with the words, the Academy should fire Brett Ratner and then mm -hmm. quoted what he said. That was the first time it hit online. And it was the first time anybody said they should fire him. And I didn't even know about it until people started writing me. And then he wrote me and said, was it okay that I posted this? I didn't know that I should. And I said, oh, fine. Yeah, whatever. I didn't know it was going to go anywhere. <laughs> I don't think that it, I'm not saying it's all Ryan's credit that he should take credit for it. I'm just saying that that was the first thing I heard about it. And then we both acknowledged that it was a pretty uh, controversial thing to say that they should fire him over this because it brings up all the issues around the word fag and it brings up homophobia and it brings up you know what people are going to say that that homosexuals are get are, are overreacting to the word and all that you know it stirs all that up just saying that just saying they should fire him over this word it's like oh can't you take a joke and no he didn't mean it that way and you know all that sort of thing so then mark harris who is way way more reputable and prestigious than we are wrote a very eloquent piece about it and why he should get fired and you quoted that on your site so then uh, Andrew O'Hare on um, Salon also wrote a why the Academy should fire Brett Ratner piece. And then it was on your site. It was talked about a lot, which Brett Ratner himself probably reads. And then it was on Twitter all over the place. It was exploding online, this story, and the hate for Brett Ratner. Listen, the public kind of hated him already, but this was giving them a reason to really, excuse me, to really hate on him, even though he had apologized very nicely and kindly for what he said. You know, he made a very sincere and humble apology. But uh, Tom Sherrick uh, uh, declared that uh, it, that the 
uh, rehearsals for Fags is was not a deal breaker. Uh, that he better not do that again. And right. words do have meaning. Words do have consequences. So that's the end of of uh, improper uh, remarks for a person who has to carry a certain a certain dignity, uh, well, at least while he she is uh, producing the Oscars. So that's the end of that. But we're going to give him a pass. Yeah. on rehearsals for fags and then boom he didn't even know about howard stern so once howard stern was i think absorbed regardless or in addition to andrew here and mark harris and so on that was the end yeah. yeah well i think several things started to happen at that point it wasn't just howard stern i don't think it was tom shurek i think it was the gay community freaking out and getting angry at the academy for uh. for just giving it a pass i wrote something like you know, great, the Academy decides during Oscar season to shun the gay community. That's smart. Well, then the, the Ratner fanboys will pick up the slack. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> to insult the gay community is like nuts for mm -hmm. the Academy to do. So um, I think that GLAAD contacted them. I think people were writing them. I think that they didn't want to hear this online anymore. It was too much. People were just, it did not stop. Yeah. It wasn't stopping. It was a firestorm. And <laughs> I think they probably said, you know, nicely, please resign. We'll let you resign. <laughs> he said, okay, I'll resign. And then Eddie Murphy followed because he didn't want to do the Oscars without Brett Ratner, which I totally understand, and I wouldn't want to do it either if I were him. So anyway, that's what happened. And um, so all of a sudden they were out, and then everything quieted down, everything. So I can't imagine the Academy standing by Brett Ratner and trying to go through with it under this. Can you imagine? They, there's nothing they could do. It's basically how it went down. And then they did. They just did what, what they could do to scramble together a producing team, which they picked Brian Grazer, who's, you know, totally solid and trustworthy. And then, of course, Billy Crystal, who's an old hat. Sort of like, come on and do the show one more time, Billy. Save us, you know, because... Yeah. All this nonsense about the Muppets and, you know, this and that. It's like they didn't have time to put together something like that. There's just no time. They need someone now who they know can deliver. You know, it's like, it's like uh, you know, it's like Crash Davis in, the, <laughs> in Bull Durham. You know, put him in there. You know he can play. You know he'll do a great job. And uh, Other than who other than Chris Tapley actually thought it was a good idea to even flirt with the idea of having it hosted by the Muppets? Oh, it was a huge Twitter phenomenon. I was stunned to find out how many people love the Muppets online. I guess it just really shows the difference between the generations that are represented. But uh, Scott Weinberg um, had a Muppets Oscars Twitter set up, and it got like 10,000 followers immediately. He got, t or I think maybe 20,000 or something like that, Facebook too. And he got like 10,000 followers just for suggesting that the Muppets host the Oscars. Okay. So, I mean, it was a, it was kind of taking taking a, a hold online, really. I don't think the Academy would have ever seriously considered that. That would have been a disaster all over the place. I mean, if they were going to plan the Muppets to host the Oscars, they would need, like, at least a year to plan the thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I think it was uh, basically, uh, I, I, I think that the, uh, the an honest assessment of the last nine days is that the thinking of even bringing in Brett Ratner, which was uh, when he was first announced, there wasn't any ambiguity about the reaction, which is that they decided to uh, kind of lowball the tone of the Oscars. They decided to go for someone who's, who has proved himself uh, repeatedly 
as being a, a, a sort of a populist, lowball commercial director of not any who doesn't have a lot going on underneath, who's just looking to be popular, make films that are appealing in a kind of a generic, uh, you know, ordinary multiplex popcorn sense. So they're, but they were looking to, for him to attract um, what they felt would be a whole new. Um, um, field of, of, of writing talent, a comic writing talent, and his relationships with the, uh, you know, with the Ben Stiller generation and, and, and people in their 30s and even younger, you know, uh, people. So they felt it was a, he was a, a good, good guy to bring in a lot of other people. It wasn't so much him, but his relationships. But they knew that he would set some sort of tone and that it would be... Uh, I don't think it was very perceptive of them. There's a lot of very clever people out there who know and have great relationships. The Judd Apatow, you know, click, if you will. There's a lot of people out there, and I just think it was kind of a curious choice, and I don't think it, it showed a lot of wisdom on their part. I'm, I'm half wondering now, as I listen to you, if they didn't want Eddie Murphy to begin with and that Brett Ratner was a result of that, and Eddie Murphy might have said, I will do it if Brett Ratner produces. It's possible because of Eddie Murphy's relationship with the Academy and the whole thing with dream girls and the fact that he's funny and he's black um and they were accused of being the white oscars last year because it was just white 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 <laughs> it was like all white nominees and you know they get a lot of flack for that for for being so demographically correct as in we only you know we only promote the white demographic because that's what brings in the ratings so i'm not entirely convinced we're breaking I... up again <laughs> but we are i can't uh so can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Anyway, so I, that's what I'm wondering is if, if it wasn't Eddie Murphy was the first choice and then Brett Ratner followed. I think that's really possible. You know, I'd, I'd like to hear from the Academy if that's how it went down. Because uh, Brett and Ratner seem like such an out of left field choice, you know, really. And that Eddie Murphy quit after he was fired as producer, you know. So I don't know. It might have been that they wanted Eddie Murphy to host. It's possible. Before um, Tower Heist opened last weekend, uh, before, uh, the, uh, the word on Eddie Murphy, the expectation was that, uh, one, he had revived his comic career and he was back to his bowfinger strength and that he was, uh, it was onward and upward and he is no more the sour puss who bolted out of the Oscars and he didn't win and he didn't want to do this and made these you know, fat suit comedies and family comedies that weren't that good. You know, he's been kind of slumbering and slumping for a long time. So he was, okay, he's back and let's go and can't wait for the Oscars. It's going to be great. Within the space of, uh, what, four days, five days, the, all that was over. You yeah. know, the, his, his being on the Oscars is over. His, the movie uh, uh, underperformed. It's supposed to hit the mid-30s. It did the mid-20s. It's being perceived as a just a flat-out, movie that did not make it, that it failed, it, you know, it's, it, it, something didn't work as far as uh, it in, in the public. So the man's uh, bounce back is completely over. I think he made a stupid mistake uh, to, to bail on the thing. I would have stayed with it because what is Brett Ratner exactly going to do to improve or somehow um, enhance his remarks during the, um, uh, the opening monologue or whatever he was going to do for the opener? And then his cracks from, from time to time. I mean, you know, what we're talking about is what? Maybe a 20 or 25-minute window at most in which he would actually deliver material and be Eddie Murphy and be funny? What would Brett Ratner do exactly to make it funnier? Or, you know, he's just going to be, in the, in, you know, up in the control room going, yeah, Eddie, I love you, you know. 
What, yeah. what difference would it have made? He just I, bailed because he did, he, he's an asshole. You know, he had a chance to be, uh, you know, a, a guy who, who matters again. And he is completely out of that right now. He just, mm. the whole thing is gone in the space of seven days. He matters. He doesn't maybe matter to Whitey, but he matters. I mean, the thing is, is... Uh, this I, Whitey thought he was really funny. And, I think and, I would have bailed too, honestly. I, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying taking Eddie Murphy's side or Brett Ratner's side. I don't, I think everybody made the right decision here. I think hiring him, Brett Ratner, in the first place was a bad decision. But I do think Eddie Murphy is so loyal to him that he didn't want to do it with somebody else. They already had all their stuff worked out. Stupid. Stupid. I don't think it's stupid. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to go over the side with you, Brett, because you screwed up. I mean, this, you know, who, who does that? Well, he probably didn't think that, that he should have been fired. A lot of people don't. A lot of people think that, that are not fired or resigned or whatever. I think that a lot of people feel like that. They, they, they gave him the heave ho. He, 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 he took the initiative himself, you know, wisely. Well, uh, I think uh, a, lot of, yeah, a lot of people feel like your reader Lex G feels that it was a totally inappropriate, over hysterical, you know, response to a word. Uh huh. And that's how they feel. And they probably Eddie Murphy was taking his own quiet little stand against that. And he thought that it was wrong that he was fired for that. So he's taking a stand. I think that's fine. You you take your sides. You know, you decide what, what, you, what you want to stand up for. And, you know, there are kind of people are sort of blindsided by the Internet time and time again. The Internet is like the people's voice, but it's a very specific group of people, you know, very progressive, very, um, you know, issue-oriented voice so to recap we uh we need we have to talk about 1010 which we both saw at the afi fest uh, right. last which closed last thursday night and it was a big screening at the uh, chinese and uh, of course this is a Probably going to be a huge uh, hit with the uh, family audience. It's a, it's a, it's not just a cartoon, but it's a motion capture, uh, partly motion capture and partly animated. But it's uh, pretty impressive uh, technically. I was uh, never at, at any point not saying to myself, uh, "This is, this is very high end, very sophisticated, uh, uh, you know, animation uh, composition all the way through." However, I thought it was uh, puerile and and infuriating in its uh, shallowness and its uh, uh, relentless uh, dependence uh, on um, on kind of amusement park thrill ride uh, aesthetic. Um, nicely composed, you know, good sense of uh, of command in terms of like uh, what to show us and how you know how to swirl the camera around and 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 you know very explicitly make it clear what's going on. But I was just underwhelmed uh, uh, severely uh, within, I'd say, about 15, 20 minutes. And then it was just agony to sit through, although oh. all the time I knew I was watching something of a very uh, accomplished order in a technical sense. So yeah. what did you think? I, I, if I had been in an aisle seat, I would have walked out after 15 minutes. But um, mm. And it's, it's not because it wasn't well made. It's incredibly well made. And God, I mean, the people that are involved in this project and the time it took to make it and the careful uh, mocap, I mean, it's just they did everything right except they forgot about the story. And that... Yeah. That shows you, you were talking about that with Hugo, but I, I even think you would say that Hugo had a lot more story than this. I mean, at least Hugo had a plot. 
Hugo has a, a story that definitely delivers in a very affecting and touching way in the last uh, half hour uh, yeah. or 25 minutes. It's, it's, it quite uh, satisfies, uh, extremely satisfying uh, as a payoff. It's just that it takes forever to get there. Right, that was my and, issue and Tintin is sort of the opposite of that. It's like it's, yeah. it's nonstop dazzlement. It's sort of like if you're trying to keep a toddler entertained to keep them from crying. You sort of wave a whole bunch of stuff in their face and dance at them and try to give them as much as you can visually so to keep them distracted. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why people, like Chris Tapley, for instance, calls it one of the best, handily one of the best films of the yeah. year. <laughs> and um, and he's not the only one. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were raving about it. Um, I don't know why. I don't know if it was because I was sitting on the left side. For some reason, they put me on the left side of the house and... Um, when I see a 3D movie, I can't sit there and have my head crank the whole time. You know, I have to be right in the center. Um, oh. I st my neck still hurts <laughs> from that night. <laughs> but um, but it were wasn't... you in the uh, fifth or sixth or seventh row somewhere? No, around? we were we were decently placed, but you know, we weren't in the middle, and that's where I needed to be. I almost we almost walked out when I saw where my seat was. I thought I can't watch this movie like this, and mm -hmm. should we leave? Oh no, let's just see how good it is. Maybe it'll be okay, but. You know, um, it wasn't like we had bad seats. I didn't want to complain or be horrible about it. I thought it would be fine. But as it turned out, um, I couldn't even really get the power of the image because of... I mean, I got the 3D. I could still see that fine. But the the point of it was, for me, was that I didn't care about anything that was happening on screen. I could close my eyes and I would have had the same experience, you know. It didn't matter to me because I didn't care about Tintin. I had no idea what the hell was going on. Who was this weird alcoholic guy? The weird, like he's drinking, he's boozing it up, and then like, it, you know, they they just want to. He just wants to run around with his adolescent boy. I mean, what's up with that? They throw in the opera singer to make it like, you know, he's attracted to women, but it's still weird. <laughs> so I don't know. I just I didn't, and I thought the dog was strange and the mocap was strange. I thought they all had the dead eye syndrome. It was like the Polar Express, which was like yeah. a movie that yeah. was set in the snow, and yet none of the kids were cold. Mm -hmm. It was such a basic detail, but it distracted me through the whole movie. I was like, wait a minute, there's snow on the ground, and the, mm -hmm. you know, the guy's barefoot, or he doesn't have a sweater or something. It was the mm -hmm. same kind of thing. Like, it just, it almost looks real, but it doesn't quite look real, mm -hmm. you know? So it was not a good movie for me. It was, it's up there with, I hate to say this, because God, I love Steven Spielberg, and I don't want to, you know, bum out Paramount publicity, but it is, to me, one of the worst films I've seen this year, mm -hmm. you know? So um, uh, I know that you have uh, uh, talked to uh, uh, some folks uh, online about what they feel is a uh, uh, like a you know I'm so blocked they feel in my uh, attitude about Steven Spielberg that I cannot see the good stuff that he does do and I I do insist and I'm insisting right now that I. That when he is good and, and doing certain things with great expertise and great enthusiasm, great brio, uh, I see that and appreciate that. It's just that I think that he's, um, I don't know, whatever he had that was really uh, exceptional and, and, uh, and memorable and, and really something to, to, to hold on to and celebrate, I think that is, I think he's 20 years past his peak I think that he ended for me. Um, he he had hold of something that was uh, he had uh, 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 he believed in, in in narratives really amounting to something, 
And I, I, I think that if you take away Schindler's List, I think that really started to end for him. Um, bef- you know, with, when I saw The Color Purple, I said, that was the, that's, that's it, man. Anybody who's responsible for a film like this, uh, I can't really accept or, or believe in. And, uh, <laughs> well, I love The Color Purple, so you can't get any criticism from that movie out of me. I mean, although I did think it was, like, schmaltzified. Oh, my God, it was awful. It was schmaltzified, and he even schmaltzified Schindler's List to a degree. It was at that point in his career that I almost started to give up on him, but I liked what he's been doing, a, a few things he's done since. Like, I really appreciated AI. I thought it was weird. Oh. Sorry, but I did. Oh. It was I mean, it was agony to sit through that film. I don't know. I, mean, I, th- I thought it was interesting. I liked it, but I, you know, I think that unfortunately for Spielberg, um, every complaint you've had about him was kind of backed up and confirmed yeah. with Tintin. Yeah. It's like it's almost like you said, "This is what's wrong with Spielberg movies." All of your readers said, "You're so terrible. You hate Steven Spielberg. You're never gonna like." You were mm-hmm. predetermined to hate this movie. But then Tintin comes along and it checks every box. <laughs> yeah. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I hope it does. I hope Warhorse offers a little bit more. But it wasn't a good sign when Spielberg wasn't at the AFI premiere. Yeah. I mean, the guy fucking owns a jet. He can't fly out for one night and take time off the set. Mm-hmm. From uh, there's just, I mean, that was just to me the weirdest thing. And then, like, like you were saying, he sort of apologized for the movie before we ever even saw. <laughs> I was noticing, as I said during our breakfast yesterday, that uh, if a person in in the opening remarks prior to a major film about to show to a big audience, if they indicate any sort of uh, apology or any kind of, well, I hope you like it after it's over, and you know, you certainly are. Uh, uh, I, I love your enthusiasm, and I but. Uh, I hope you feel the same way when it's over. That is always uh, a tip-off that yeah. there's... Because he said, uh, I never did an animated film before, and uh, uh, what can I say? I don't know what else to say about yeah. it, but I uh, hope you like it. You know, it was so. weird. It was really a weird introduction to the movie. It was so strange. It was almost like he was brought in to do something. He kind of phoned it in. He said, this would be cool, this would be cool, this would be cool, but then didn't sit there and oversee it. It mm-hmm. was like he didn't care, really, how it turned out. He yeah. left it all to the effects people, and the effects people did their job well. They but did it, a good job. It needed a director. It needed a storyteller. It needed somebody passionate <laughs> behind the project to make, say, I want to make a good movie about Tintin. Uh-huh. And it was just, I mean, you could just make it an amusement park ride. It would have done just fine. You know, make it a 3D amusement park ride like they have in The Simpsons at Universal Studios, and there you go. That's the way it should have been done. Yeah. Yeah, because there's nothing. This is just a, a kid who is uh, brave and solves crimes and does, is is known for his uh, exploits. And he's kind of a part Hardy Boys, and he's a uh, you know he's a uh, he's a sort of an energy energy field on his own, and and, and renowned and wrote, written about in newspapers, and he's a uh, you know. So I don't know why they thought there was going to be anything other than just uh, it's just a structure or a, or a character to deliver thrilling action pieces, you know. Um, um, Which weren't even all that know. thrilling when they landed in that town, and I you knew there was a whole other one to sit through that was coming up. Yeah. I just was like I shifted in my seat, and I just thought, oh God, no, please. And I, I can't think of a Steven Spielberg action movie where I would have ever felt that way. Mm-hmm. In Jurassic Park, I have to endure all the boring scenes until you get to the action sequences. They're so great, you know, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. T Rex chasing them scene or the the Velociraptor scene at the end. I mean, those are to me worth sitting through that terrible dialogue and those schmaltzy scenes. But the action sequences in that movie are just 
great. And that's what I was hoping for Tintin. I didn't think I would connect to the story, but I was hoping at least that the action sequences would be involving, suspenseful, and worthy of Spielberg's name. I'm uh-huh. sorry, but he just phoned this thing in. He didn't direct this movie. He couldn't uh-huh. have. Yeah. So that's my take on it. I'm so sorry, Paramount. I love. You know, I really wanted to love it, but... I should have um, noted when I said that I thought that he's been over since the mid-'80s. I really did <clears throat> um, like, admire, deeply admire most of, Sh- of Schindler's List. I thought it was quite uh, quite an accomplishment. I don't think there's anybody that, that doesn't uh, respect that film. And I really did uh, honestly uh, enjoy both Jurassic, the first two Jurassic Park films. Um, I actually liked The Lost World. <laughs> I really did. I didn't have any big issues with that. Uh, I, was, I re-saw... I, watched it again on blu-ray about a month ago yeah. and i said this wasn't this wasn't too bad it really wasn't um so no you know. i know those early spielberg movies you know usually with spielberg you, you you make an action movie he makes an action movie that especially is just just hardcore action yeah you know it's going to deliver on that level it just yeah. is even war of the worlds as problematic as it was the action sequences were breathtaking you know, pretty good. Um, and I, so I think. But that's, what a horrible ending! No, what a it's horrible a horrible ending. It's a horrible ending, and you know he usually has trouble, you know, non-Spielbergizing his movies and making them not sappy. And by the way, Munich was a good movie. I thought. I know you famously hated it, but I mean, it was almost a great movie, Munich. And um, so I don't know. I just I feel like uh, he phoned this in, and I don't think people should give him a pass for that. He's too good. Uh-huh. He's too good to have turned out this piece of crap. Uh-huh. So I'm just there's a guy, there's a guy named J.R. who writes in a lot and he says I have seen War Horse and it is phenomenal and if Jeff ends up hating it then he just has it in for Spielberg but that's oh, already well. known you know he should just there's nothing all he does say. is play the contrarian card and you, you know I know well I mean if we want to go back and say okay anything since the color purple well since the color purple we have empire of the sun we have indiana jones we have jurassic park we have schindler's list we have saving private ryan we have minority i, I liked Report. i liked uh, i i should say i did uh, uh admire and really love actually the second indiana jones with harrison ford and sean connery and uh like everybody else i was uh also a fan of Saving Private Ryan, so I shouldn't be so blanket, and I'm not, not being with the fair, color and I'm not being exact enough, and I apologize. Yeah, you might be able to make that call with Munich, ever since Munich, but, I mean, mm. to have made Munich in 2005, I think that's pretty cool. I mean, he needs to stretch himself a little bit more. I don't know why he's playing it so safe. I mean, say what you want about Clint Eastwood, but the guy doesn't play it safe. I mean, he's mm-hmm. trying different things in, in, as he's turning 80 or whatever. I mean, that's um, admirable to me as for him as an artist. Spielberg, it's like, I don't know. You know, doesn't mm-hmm. he have enough money? Hasn't he made enough money for the studios? Doesn't he want to try something different? And I no, guess he thought he, he doesn't because he's a commercial director. He's a, he's a super hack who does really, really well with, with the right material. But he's obviously, there's something about being really rich that makes you want to be richer. <laughs> I suppose. It's the strangest system. It's something about in our nature. You think, oh, now I don't have to worry. I am completely secure. I can take care of my kids' education. I can live well. And I can do anything I want. What does he do? He makes more commercial stuff. Yeah. Well, at least with Munich, he was trying. But it's almost like because Munich didn't hit, he sort of gave up on that, um, stretching himself. But I I would encourage, I mean, not that he cares what I say, God, but I would encourage him to, to, to stretch a little bit more and to remember why he got into filmmaking in the first place. He's a great director, honestly. He is. He just, 
he needs to stop listening to the wrong people and he needs to take a couple of chances, you know, and not play it so safe. God, Tintin was like very, very disappointing. I'm hoping Warhorse is good. I'm sure it will be. At least have a story and a plot. Mm-hmm. At the very least, it'll have a plot. We know that, you know. So, but um, man, that Saving Private Ryan, other than the fact that it totally schmaltzes out in the last two thirds really badly, that first part is so good that it's. It's worthy of greatness. It's worthy of its reputation. Okay. All right. So we've we've yarned on and on and on enough about this. Yeah. <laughs> so. So what? when is your, um, if I may ask, when are you when are you planning? When do you when are you scheduled to speak to Olivia Olivia Coleman? Oh, I, I just have had casual emails back and forth with the publicist, but I need to nail it down. Okay. And I'll let you know as soon as I do. Um, and hopefully they'll have a screener that they can send me, which would be great. <laughs> You know, it's funny, uh, but even the screeners were screwed up, I have to say. Um, the one that I received um, uh, has a uh, – the, the film has been shot at uh, the widescreen uh, scope ratio of 235 or 239 to 1. And they, uh, the screener has it squeezed, anamorphically squeezed, so that the uh, everybody is kind of – squeezed in from the sides mm. you know so it's not even naturalistic looking and i told the people i told a guy at uh, strand uh, releasing that even the screener was screwed up and it doesn't look right it's not the way the movie actually looks and he says well i think it's your television that's what i well, think too on my cheapy tv it's gonna look just fine i betcha I mean, maybe you... maybe on a cheapy TV, but but I'm telling you, I I don't have any distortion issues with anything. I mean, no matter what I play, be it a screener, be it a I just watched a movie called One Happy One Lucky Elephant last night. It's just a regular screener. It's a documentary. Uh, every Blu-ray I play, there's no distortion of anything. I never have to like go into the aspect ratio and adjust it. Right, right. And it's believe me, they it's them. They 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 screwed it up. And um, so even that is going to be, but at least you'll be able to see, uh, it's just, it, it, it screws it up when you can't at least appreciate the, the way the movie is supposed to, to look. So. Well, that makes me sad because I, you know, um, it makes me sad for them because I know they're probably trying, you know. It's just that um, maybe they didn't have enough money or, you know, whatever it was. So I don't know. It, it, I, I mean, we should still stay supportive of it, regardless of that. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's a bare-bones production. They don't have a lot of money to make the best screener, so, okay, fine. <laughs> <I'm> sh- <laughs> Look, <laughs> we don't have enough money. Let's make a shitty image so that it looks funny. Well, they're doing and, the and, best and they can, are- <laughs> you know. They really are. No, so, no. I mean, I, I don't see why. I mean, I'm going to watch it. I bet I won't have the same problem you do with that. I mean, if, if I should be so lucky to get it. And by the way, what's this one last elephant about? That sounds really good. Is that about sad elephant somewhere? It's actually called One Lucky Elephant. Oh. And it's about a, a female named Flora who has been with this guy in a traveling circus. And he got her as, mm. a, he got her as an infant. And uh, she, there's something about the, the elephant uh, personality that she loved people and she loved performing. Oh, she was really into it. He could tell that she was not just you know, glumly doing what she was uh, trained to do, but she had a, a real l- love of performing. She was yeah. happy. And but then... Some, but she, she got older and uh, her hom- hormones kicked in 
and he could tell that that she was just not into it and she was missing cues and she was not doing the tricks so he's basically her her heart was elsewhere and mm. she he realized that he <clears throat> he had done probably something wrong by number one not having a companion for her so she could practice her social skills with other elephants but secondly because he felt that he was just uh, doing something fundamentally wrong by having her oh. live this life and that she really ought to be in Botswana or 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 somewhere in Africa and, you know, having a regular elephant life. So mm -hmm. the whole thing is basically he has to try and find a, pl a place for her. And he tries this place in southern Miami and he plays, uh, he tries a, uh, a, a number of, there's a preserve for elephants in Tennessee. Yeah, I know about that. I support them on Facebook. They're great. And the, but they only uh, have Indian elephants because Indian elephants are generally uh, uh, they're a little quieter and, and less excitable and uh, African elephants are known to be a more aggressive and what they consider be, to be playing and uh, nudging each other and, you know, little games. Uh, Indian elephants would consider uh, outright aggression and, and not wanted and, you know, they just basically throw the whole... So there's, she winds up in Pittsburgh and um, at an at a elephant... Uh, preserve of some sort and violent things happen she hurts a couple of people because she oh. feels rejected and hurt uh that number one that her parent her mother was killed uh, you know obviously violently oh, God. she was an infant and she's um she had this relationship with this guy uh the who the central male figure who is, loves her and and she is his daughter you know he cares for her as much as any man could care for a child and it's uh, it's heartbreaking on his part, but it's really heartbreaking because the, the overall thing is that it's tragic. These poor elephants, they're doing the best they can, and they adapt in some ways, and sometimes some ways they get along. But why are they even here? Why do we do this to animals? Because we're barbaric. Uh, we're hideous, barbaric race we are, the humans. Yeah. I mean, we're basically, it's, it's, it's just nothing but sadness about this poor elephant. Well, what happens to find finally? Does she finally get freed? I mean... No, she never makes them back to um, oh, Botswana or Africa. Well, she does have uh, other elephants to hang out with. It's you know, it's a, it's a, it's not. Does a she make a friend? Place. Does she make a friend? And is she, you know? Yeah. She, she makes does. a friend. So good. That's good, right? But it's a, you know, we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be doing this to animals. It's all about uh, giving ourselves a little charge. We like to commune with exotic animals. We like to commune with animals. Obviously, our, we have our regular domesticated pets, but we, it's part of our emotional lives. But it's selfish to do this. And um, zoos are a bad idea. I swear there is something that really just snapped in my head when I saw all those, all those um, animals that it had to be killed when they were released by that maniac in Ohio who had kept them in this relatively small preserve, the mostly large uh, predator cats and, um, and bears also, all of them killed by the state police because they had no choice because they, you know, they had to pr protect the populace from possible mauling or, or being murdered themselves. It was just a tragedy. And mm -hmm. I swear to God, something really snapped in me. And I never liked the idea. I have not liked the idea of zoos. I feel like we're, you know, you're visiting animals in prison. You're going to San Quentin, and you're seeing these animals in these cages. And I, I just think it's, uh, it's wrong. And I, I, don't, I think that the Cameron Crowe film is just coming at the wrong time in the evolution of our consciousness about zoos. And it's, uh, it's not going to, 
it's got something against it, right? Right from the get-go. I don't know I about that. I mean, isn't it about preserving animals? I mean, there is something good to be said about zoos because I tell you something, mm-hmm. as as cruel as we are to animals in this country, in other countries, it's even worse. They just shoot them <laughs> and they sell them to exotic you know, collectors and... Well, it's the collectors that are the fault. It's the people but in I don't the, think we the Nouveau Riche who, who value... You know the ivory and and want uh, and will pay top dollar for it. these people are are loathsome. I know, I mean, but to, trust you know. me, Cameron Crowe's not making that movie. His movie's going to be very socially conscious. I know that about him. There's no way he'd make it if it wasn't. So it's probably about saving sad animals like that elephant you're talking about. You know, I mean, there are so there's something to be said for these. God, there's this place in um, Florida that rescues lab chimps, chimps who've been tested on for decades. That is the most inhumane barbaric thing that we do chimps are our cousins they're so intelligent they have huge Mm -hmm. brains they know exactly what's going on they can feel pain we have no right to keep them in cages that's why i love the rise of the planet of the apes so much you know (laughs) damn damn right man (laughs) yeah so anyway well uh i know that his movie we bought a zoo is not about uh, animals in cages it's about an open air preserve in which uh, animals are allowed to graze in a in an area, I don't know how big the 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 actual zoo, but it is a you know it's not an uh, uh, you know like a seventy five square mile preserve. It is a zoo. A zoo by its nature is is one in which an animal is confined to a certain area, be it out outdoors, or whatever. But you know they're not in their natural habitat. The idea is to charge money so that people can come in and you know watch and smell and and maybe pet the animals. That's the whole idea. So I don't. I know it's he's a uh, smart and sensitive, and 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 good fellow who is not in, is not indifferent to the plight of of unhappy animals. But it is a zoo, and a zoo is a zoo. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, this has been uh, a, a good chat. Uh, what yeah. do we do this time? Uh, uh, 90, 95. <laughs> we're at we're at an hour and a half, but I'll cut a little of it. Okay. Out, so. Yeah. Let's cut let's cut whatever we can. Yeah, I'll try to cut it down a bit. Yeah. <laughs> All but right. Nice talking to you. All right. Have a good Sunday. All right. You too. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Oscar Poker with Jeffrey Wells from HollywoodElsewhere.com, Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com, and Phil Contrino from BoxOffice.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, and we will be back next week. The bumper music was Knockin' at Your Door by Girl in a Coma and Wish You Were Here, Roger Waters. Thanks for listening.
you think you can tell Heaven from hell Blue skies for pain And can you tell a green field From a cold steel rail A smile from a veil Do you think you can tell And did they get you to trade Your heroes for ghosts Hot ashes for trees And hot air for a cool breeze Cold comfort for change And did you exchange A welcome part of the war For a lead role in a cage Thank you. How we wish they were here.